So, wow, Jay, it's the end of the baby cable era. It's okay, Miles. We'll always have adult cable. I mean, I'd like to think that he went straight from baby to angry middle-aged man. That is actually really easy to picture. But no, Cable had a childhood. A post-apocalyptic 37th century childhood, but a childhood nonetheless. Oh uh, yeah, with the Ascani clan, right? On and off. But mostly he ended up being raised by... His sister Rachel? No, Scott and Jean. Where'd they find the time? Eh, on their honeymoon. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 167 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And as, as you listen to this episode, we will be struggling through the final day of New York Comic Con. I hope we're surviving the experience. Yeah, I'm gonna assume our live show went really well. I hope. I suspect it was perfect. There were no technical issues at all. We were charming and delightful, and Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson are now going to adopt each of us. Also, although not at the live show, by now it's not a spoiler, so T and I will totally have cosplayed Red B and Michael. I'm so pleased that you guys are bringing back freaking Red B and Michael, the bee that lives in his belt. Yeah, well, we were trying to think of costumes that could be something really costumey for her, and then something that I could basically cover with a jacket and be professional in, since I'm covering the show. Um... <laughs> So that's that's one of them. I love it. I uh, I've only cosplayed the once X Men related. Uh, just that time that we were um, Wolverine and Havoc from Meltdown. Uh, maybe another time. Right now I'll be at the Dark Horse Comics booth, so uh, I guess I got to be kind of professional. Well, speaking of the last time we cosplayed, um, did I did I tell you what's going to be happening at Emerald City? Uh, I believe you did, but you didn't tell the listeners. Oh man. Okay. So my mom is coming to Emerald City Comic Con this year which I'm really excited about for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that she agreed to cosplay with me. So um, we have we have something planned. Having heard what this plan is, I can vouch for this and say it's going to be pretty freaking great. And, and y'all get to meet my mom, who's fantastic. I can also vouch for that. Robin is truly rad. What is also rad is this story, kind of? I don't know. Is this story rad or is it ridiculous? I can't tell. It's some of each, and it manages to end by being really genuinely poignant. This is a story that's tended to stick with me, I think largely because of its final issue. And also because, to me, it kind of feels like the spiritual end of the first X-Factor series, even though it'll continue on a bit more after this. Yeah, we are doing X-Factor Endgame, the last four issues of the book that starred the five original X-Men. After this, it'll go into Peter David's run, where it was like Havoc and Polaris and Multiple Man working for the government. So it's effectively a different comic. And it was always interesting to me that the new X-Factor didn't start out with a new number one or a new title or something, because the book that X-Factor has been up until now, this is the last of it. Very appropriately, I think, this arc is scripted by Chris Claremont. Which is a little strange because Louise Simonson defined X-Factor, but Chris Claremont defined the entire X-Line, so I, I guess it works. I don't know, I have mixed feelings. Like, this was Louise Simonson's book, you know? It was Louise Simonson's book, but something that we've seen time and time again with X-Factor, with New Mutants, um, is how smoothly the two of them are able to pick up each other's voices and write the characters that the other has defined. And I think that's definitely the case here. The other reason I like Claremont on this is that the way that this story concludes is very, very much a diptych with the Dark Phoenix saga. 
That is absolutely true, and we'll get to more of that. But another interesting thing about the creative team, so you mentioned it's by Claremont. It's scripted by Claremont. Mm -hmm. The plot is actually by Jim Lee and Wills Portacio, two of the artists who were a really big deal uh, at Marvel at the time. And it's it's a mix of cool and kind of nonsensy. Which I think kind of defines the 90s, especially the early 90s in general. Yeah, but it's got enough in the way of quiet and enough in the way of resonant moments and room to breathe for Claremont to really do his thing and have his voice come through. Um, you don't get the sense of, of the art and the text fighting with each other and playing tug of war the way that you do in a lot of stuff contemporary to this arc. So what's the status quo that Claremont's jumping into? If we're wrapping up X Factor here, I feel like we should maybe give a slightly more thorough recap than we usually do at this point in the series. Well, in that case... Previously on X Factor. X Factor, currently populated by the original five X-Men, have been fighting Apocalypse since the early days of Louise Simonson, in fact, since her first issue, number six. So Apocalypse is a mutant who's been around for thousands of years and manipulates societies to destroy the weak so the strong may thrive. Apocalypse tends to be accompanied by a team of superpowered henchmen. Originally, they were the Alliance of Evil. Usually, they will be the Horsemen of Apocalypse and or the Dark Riders. The current iteration of them is called the uh, Riders of the Storm. So that immediately makes me think of Riders on the Storm, the song by the Doors. I suspect that both the Doors and the Ark are referencing something like mythological and probably biblical, but I don't recognize it, so I just hear the Doors song. Man, that song references a lot of things. Including possibly Heidegger. There was a character named Heidegger in Final Fantasy VII. That always seemed kind of random. But we won't have to worry about Doors or Heidegger or whatever for very long, because the Riders of the Storm, pretty soon they're just going to be called the Dark Riders, which I guess is probably a more accurate and appropriate name, but is much less exciting and interesting in my opinion. And implies a much less jazzy soundtrack, which is a shame. Apocalypse successfully managed to recruit one member of X-Factor to this group. When Angel had his wings amputated after the mutant massacre, he tried to kill himself, or rather, Apocalypse sabotaged his plane to make it look that way. Either way, Apocalypse captured Angel and turned him into a blue killing machine with razor-sharp metal wings. The Horseman of Death! Angel managed to eventually overcome his programming, and he rejoined X-Factor as Archangel, bringing with him the sharp metal wings and a good deal of angst. So much angst! Which, I gotta say, when I was reading these comics when I was younger, Archangel was by far the most mature character because he was so angry and sad all the time and, and cut things up and brooded. I loved him so much. Also, his character design uh, definitely did him some favors. That's a great character design. Miles listened to a lot of Stabbing Westward as a teenager. So did you, dude. And for the record, they totally hold up. At least their first two albums do. Anyway, as all of that's going on, Cyclops and Marvel Girl, they've been raising the son of Cyclops and his ex-wife, Madeline Pryor. And Madeline, as you may remember, was a clone of Jean Grey created by Mr. Sinister. Go back and listen to Inferno. I was going to say we're past that now, but we're never really past Inferno. Inferno continues forever. Now, this baby, I guess more of a toddler at this point, I don't know, his name is Nathan Christopher Summers. He's still a baby, but he already has telekinetic powers, kind of weird for a mutant to manifest them so early, and apparently some telepathy or at least a telepathic bond with Jean Grey. It's kind of unclear, and everything in this kid's life is about to get a lot more unclear. 
that's what we're about to go into. But a previous letter column had teased that this arc was going to contain something very, very different. Right. Originally, X-Factor number 66 was going to have a wedding of, guess who, Scott Summers and Jean Grey. And this was teased really heavily, specifically in the letter column to X-Factor number 56. So 10 issues ago, almost a year. Originally, if it had gone as planned, um, Apocalypse and the Marauders were going to crash the wedding. The Ascani clan was going to be introduced. And um, yeah, basically, it was going to be exactly as hellacious and chaotic as you would kind of expect. Right. But Editorial decided that the wedding should instead take place in the climactic Uncanny X-Men number 300, which of course didn't happen either. It ended up being in X-Men volume 2, number 30. And for this arc, the way it did play out, this arc of X-Factor, Chris Claremont helped adjust the plot to be the one we'll see here, with Nathan Christopher Summers being taken into the future to eventually become Cable. There is, however, one relic of the plot that might have been, and that is a fantastic unused X-Factor 66 cover, which we will stick in the, vi- in the visual companion to this episode. It's super rad. And another thing that was introduced in a letters column around this era was Peter David's tenure. He, as we mentioned earlier, is going to be the writer taking over this book and totally changing its concept right after the issues we're covering today. But first, we've got four more of the original five. So let's jump in with X-Factor number 65, Malign Influences. So after the Extinction Agenda, we had that two-part Cyberai arc, right? Where Iceman goes to Japan, and there's a bunch of cybernetic samurai ninja types, and it's kind of ridiculous. For me, the arc we see here kind of reads like the denouement we should have gotten after the Extinction Agenda, in addition to being the end of the entire run. I sort of see why it's not, though, because this is very much a distinct and climactic arc, in and of itself, and if you'd stuck it directly on the heels of Extinction Agenda, I mean, I think you would have ended up with event fatigue. It would have been, it's it's the same reason that you gotta have a break between the Dark Phoenix Saga and the Brood Saga. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and that's certainly a type of pacing that Chris Claremont did excel at, breaking up the big climactic stuff with smaller action issues or smaller quiet issues either way, and so I guess we're seeing some of that here, and that's a good point. I think I agree with you. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So, since the X-Men are off in space, like we talked about a couple episodes ago, and may never come back as far as anybody knows... They're gonna come back. Well, of course they're gonna come back. We know that. X-Factor doesn't know that, although you'd think they'd assume by this point. But they're training. They may be the only mutant heroes left on Earth. Except those other ones. And those other ones. And those other ones. I mean, it's not that they're the only mutant fighters left on Earth. They just might be the only mutant heroes, because the other team of mutants they're aware of who aren't Freedom Force or supervillains are the uh, former New Mutants soon to be X-Force, and whether they're heroes at this point or some kind of, like, morally gray, ass-kicking, yell-kick squadron is unclear. I think they're explosion elementals. I'm pretty sure they're that. But training is occurring, and one thing that X-Factor has in common with X-Force is that they are so muscly, muscly, and their mouths are so yelly. Wills Portacio is a pretty great artist, but damn if every single panel doesn't look like the most intense yelling action scene ever. I have two intense issues with Portacio's art in this arc, and I want to get both out of the way right away because otherwise I'm going to dwell on them. Those are the way he draws babies, because holy shit, that's not normal. (laughs) <laughs> and B, the way he draws men's heads in profile, like dudes when they are turning their head to one side. It is so weird. 
That is. And in fact, going back to the first one, that was something I noticed as well. And I was talking to my partner, Anna, about it. And we started talking about how babies are drawn in Renaissance art, where like they look like just tiny, old, disgruntled men. And then we started talking about how cats are drawn in Renaissance art, where they also look like tiny, old, disgruntled oh, men, but with cat no, bodies. You're thinking, you're thinking medieval art for the cats. Medieval cats oh, okay. are top-notch batshit. Like, they're fantastic. I like to imagine that... They're not inaccurate drawings of cats, just that medieval cats actually looked like that. Oh, and they very quickly evolved uh, between then and the present day to look like how we now see cats. Well, they're domestic. There was a lot of breeding going. There was a lot of, you know, selective breeding going on. So it kind of makes sense. We're not we're talking about, you know, a greatly accelerated process, probably largely for aesthetics, because everyone was creeped out by the fact that they looked like, you know, badgers with little old man faces. Okay, so if if feline evolution can occur this quickly, I kind of wonder where we're going from here. Like, in a couple hundred years, are we just going to basically see the memes of 2017 be actual cats? Like, it's all going to be ceiling cat and uh, neon cat and stuff like that? Yes. Okay. And by the way, ceiling cat, if you're asking how something would evolve into a cat that just happens to be in the ceiling, no, the ceiling would be part of it. That would be part of the cat's physical form. I've thought this through as of right now as I'm saying it. Well, that was distressing. Shall we return to X-Factor? I suppose. Don't worry, there's distressing stuff in this arc, too. You know, I feel like after the recent episode where we spent like five minutes talking about Charles Xavier's package, we can really only go uphill. <laughs> That's true. As can his package. I don't know what that means. But stop, anyway... Stop, stop, We agreed that we were never going to mention that again. Okay, no more Charlie's package. So what's Archangel you up to, Jay? You said it again! <laughs> God... I I don't know anymore. You've ruined it. The show's over. <laughs> oh, once again. Well, what I think Archangel's up to based on the panels is that he's flying through the city and moping, pondering what Apocalypse did to him way back in the day that we so conveniently recapped just a few minutes ago. This has become the primary hobby of Warren Kenneth Worthington III in his new life as Archangel. And apparently his secondary hobby has been having amazing dialogue while he's about to crash into helicopters. Whoa! Open those eagle-keen baby blues, hot dog, before you end up spamming the proverbial can. How many metaphors is he mixing there? I mean, I'm just waiting for him to say bohunk. That's entirely reasonable. Oh man, I just want Boom Boom to ride around on Archangel's back. Like, I'm sure there's some kind of safe space she could find amid the blades, and like, she can narrate what he's doing as he broods. I just realized something, Miles. Yeah? Yay bohunk. Yay bohunk! Okay, I don't know how, but we're somehow going to introduce this into the vernacular of modern society. We'll figure it out. It's really close to being Yebopunk, which I assume is where you wear a sweater vest and are really excited about superheroics. Maybe. Well, sweater vests aside, after his near miss, he goes and meets up with Charlotte Jones, the woman he's been kinda sorta dating. She's a police officer and a single mom, and we love her. Yeah, she's great. She doesn't have a lot of time for Warren's nonsense. It's good. She and Warren haven't seen each other since the Extinction Agenda started. They check in, and he mopes and broods, but she reminds him, dude, they've all been hurt, but they've got to keep going. Like her son, who was significantly injured when he was younger and is still an adorable little bundle of optimism. Yeah, for fuck's sake, Warren, you're still super rich, and you have wings that can kill people or chop vegetables. Either way, maybe even both simultaneously, although I wouldn't recommend it. That doesn't seem sanitary. But meanwhile, Jay, what are Cyclops and Marvel Girl up to? Well, Cyclops and Marvel Girl are settling in for some post-Danger Room denouement. Cyclops talks about how the reason he's pushing the team so hard and making them yell while fighting so much, presumably, is because he doesn't want another Thunderbird, another Cypher, another Warlock. He doesn't want to lose another X-Man on his watch. 
I keep thinking back to the old days when we fought terrors like Eunice the Untouchable and Grotesque and the Vanisher. Now it's Apocalypse, Genosha, Master Mold, Reavers, and Marauders. The list seems endless. The better we get, the better they get. We can't afford a mistake. I mean, we know Cyclops is a hard-ass, and we know part of that is due to his upbringing, you know, Xavier sort of having him be the poster boy for this necessary uh, mutant paramilitary force. But I gotta say, it also sounds like he's describing the 80s turning into the 90s. The stakes have indeed gotten higher. The villains have indeed gotten more deadly. Yeah, and the heroes have to some extent leveled up to face them, but at the same time, they're not the X-Men they were, and they're not in the world that they were originally fighting for. And the other thing about this, the other thing that for me really sums up Cyclops, is the first part of what he's talking about, the part that we didn't quote, which is that the point of this, the point of his obsession with efficiency isn't about being the best, it's about not losing another life. Exactly. And I mean, having lost two new mutants when he wasn't even around, like, God, I can only imagine what that must feel like. And that's a theme that we're going to see, again, played through continually with the character, but it's something we're going to see come up again much later in this arc as well. Now, Jean has a counterpoint, as in that she's the best person to talk Cyclops down and always has been, which is that, dude, it's never been easy. Their very first mission was against freaking Magneto, but... It's worth it because they have made a difference in the lives of many, many mutants. They're continuing to make a difference. And they're specifically talking at this point about making a difference in the lives of mutants, which I think is a really important shift that goes with X-Factor, which is that the X-Men have always generally been focused on stopping mutant threats and X-Factor's focus. And I kind of want to go back and recap a little bit of this just because we are coming to the wrap up of this team has always and specifically been about protecting mutants. Right, I mean, that was the whole point of even their original conception as mutant hunters, which was just their disguise, and in reality they would rescue the mutants that they were being sent to hunt. Yeah, and that's been their goal from the start, and it's been the direction their focus has shifted. So while Scott and Jean are arguing that out, Iceman heads off to pick up Opal from her record store job for lunch. Presumably also for some awkward denouement? No, actually, they're bantery, they're great. It is pretty great. So Opal, we did see in the last arc, this is Opal Tanaka, Bobby's girlfriend, uh, who apparently was the unknown daughter of a crime lord with cybernetic samurai. It got kind of weird, but she's back to her record store job, just being a normal person, which I appreciate. And the banter they have here is delightful. Iceman greets Opal in this carefully practiced Japanese phrase, and she responds in an intense, over-the-top Brooklyn accent in retaliation. And they ice slide away to have some kind of adventures by which I mean lunch. We've gone back and forth on the whole Opal-Bobby thing, but I think our conclusion has always been the same, which is, whether or not they work romantically, goddamn, they are fun to watch hang out. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I think my conclusion from the start with Opal and Bobby is that they've got a great dynamic, they're just mistaking it for or trying to push it into being something that it isn't necessarily. I would love to see more Opal Tanaka. We got a little bit of her in Cena Grace's Iceman run recently, but it's never enough with Opal. Yeah, and she tends to come back as an accessory to Bobby Angst's stories, which is unfortunate because she's great on her own. Well, what we see next doesn't have much angst, at least not at first, because Beast is double hair dryering his fur post-shower, which, I mean, as a kind of furry dude, okay, I get it. You'd think, though, that Ship, with all of Ship's technology, could have set him up a room with warm air vents in the walls or something, though. 
Oh, like that thing from the intro to the Jetsons where George gets in the shower and then there's just like the steamy dry offy thing that, that dries him off. It would be like that. I'll take your word for it. Oh, it was great. I mean, well, parts of the Jetsons were great. Maybe just a couple parts. Maybe just that part. I me remember. I, I grew up on largely non-television. I, I know more about the Jetsons because I saw a really good Hanna-Barbera exhibit at the Rockwell Museum a few months ago, but yeah. Well, there you That's go. That's all I got. Well, what Hank's doing, aside from a less efficient version of what the Jetsons house can do, is watching his girlfriend, Trish Tilby, report from the Persian Gulf on the Gulf War. He's been taping every one of her appearances, uh, and simultaneously this has been speculating on ship's recent irregularities. I gotta say, that's Hank. Hair dryers, goofiness, pining over somebody, and thinking about technical things, like, that's kind of checking all the Hank McCoy boxes here. It is. At one point, he, uh, he in, in, in this or a nearby issue, he mentions that he fanci- fancies himself the Da Vinci of the team, which is pretty accurate. I mean, he's, he's definitely got the Renaissance polymath thing going. I totally buy that, yeah. Also, he looks a little bit like a medieval cat. I never thought of that. Oh man, now he's scary. Oh, why did you have to say that, Jay? No, medieval cats are great. <laughs> but also scary. Well, those are our five X-Factor members. But those aren't the only characters we'll be focusing on, because from somewhere, some new dudes have been analyzing X-Factor's skills and weaknesses. These guys are breaking one of the cardinal rules of spying on superheroes, which is that they, they're not silhouettes in a room full of monitors. We actually see their faces. What is what is even happening here? Right, I mean, at the very least, you can do the Dr. Claw arm in front of a monitor thing, but no, we actually see these guys. And... Boy, howdy do we. They are so 90s. I don't even know how to describe the Riders of the Storm. They're just they're just 90s. I mean, we'll put it in the visual companion. Well, first of all, they're all in humans. Yes, in humans as in the characters who have been taking up more space in the Marvel Universe recently. They got their own TV show. They get hit with a weird mist and then get powers. They live on the moon. They're really, really into eugenics. They're kind of assholes. So this group, um, we've got Fox Bat, who looks like neither a fox nor a bat. Gauntlet, who, I mean, I guess he's got gauntlets, but he's got a lot of other stuff, too. Yeah, he's he's basically just a dude bristling with weapons. A guy named Tusk, who is actually a bunch of guys, so kind of the opposite of Team America. He has an action figure, or at least did. It's probably hard to find now. And then we have Synapse, but like PSY, because, you know, psychic. This dude is basically a sexist douchebag who thinks that Jean Grey would be easy to defeat because she's a girl. Fuck you, Synapse. Uh, there is Barrage, who has Gatling guns for hands. That seems so impractical. How does he use a remote? Or, like, I don't know, wipe? Ugh. Very violently, I assume. And finally, Hard Drive, who is basically plugged into the computer and covered in circuitry and is the resident biohacker. Probably the most Portasio-esque art right here. Portasio loves drawing technological stuff, like little circuitry coding tentacle something or others. I don't even know how to describe it. Now... They're watching X-Factor, but their boss shows up to remind them of their true focus. And their boss, unlike this motley crew, is someone we will recognize. However, they are not your targets. Instead, the ship they call both home and friend, who must be taught once and for all the final terrible fate of those who dare betray apocalypse wait 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 didn't he officially give ship to x-factor back in x-factor 25 he totally did that's a shitty thing to do he gave ship to x-factor now he's blaming ship for going to x-factor this kind of goes with one of my takes on apocalypse which is that he's just making this shit up as he goes along 
oh, he is unquestionably just making this shit up as he goes along. He's also petty and goofy and a really ineffective supervillain when it actually comes down to it. He does, however, have a pretty ridiculous team of sidekicks, and they've got, instead of having individual robot horses, they have one big collective kind of horse ship situation going on, uh, which they use to crash directly into capital S ship. Yeah, and very quickly thereafter, Synapse gets inside Jean's currently telepathy-less head and regresses her in age on the astral plane so that she's all helpless and scared. I like this guy even less. Every time he does something, I like him less. But in her panic and her reliving of her childhood, she flashes back to her friend Annie's death, which was what originally triggered her telepathic powers. And briefly and suddenly, they flare back up and she is able to silence the rest of X-Factor. Yeah, this is the first time she's used telepathy in this way since she died in the first place right before the Phoenix Saga. I mean, we've seen her use it in little bits and pieces, but that's always been circumstantial. We've seen flashes of it starting to come back, and we don't know why she lost it in the first place. So I buy this a little more than the extremely convenient return of Rogue's powers in the Savage Land. That makes sense, but I gotta say, this is very much part of what we're seeing in this era, which is a reset, getting things back to the Claremont burn status quo. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. With that, with Jean's intervention, the team starts kicking ass together. They come together, they're able to execute maneuvers the way they totally failed to in the danger room earlier, and they even manage to banter pretty enthusiastically as they go. During which, Beast mentions to himself that he still thinks of himself as an X-Man. He tells one of the villains that he, like Wolverine, is the best there is at what he does. Once again, we're getting back to that old-school status quo, bit by tiny bit. Finally, Jean comes back, finishes off the last Dark Rider in the fight, who is Gauntlet, and it looks like the team is victorious. But they're not quite. There is no time for celebration, because from the crashed Apaka ship, hey, Apaka ship, I like that, Hard Drive has fully infected ship with something, and apparently it's terminal. Ship's gonna die. Which brings us to X-Factor number 66, Heroic Effort, at whose beginning we learn that ship's ailment isn't just terminal for ship. In its death throes, ship is now attacking New York. And there is no better way to show that this is a serious business climactic fight than having a montage of local superheroes also dealing with the fallout, a trope that I fucking love. Yeah, so we've got Cap, we've got some other Fantastic Four, and we have She-Hulk, who definitely has the best lines about it. Can't a lawyer practice her profession just once without her case being terminally disrupted by the attack of the mile-high psychotic starship? Jeez, with a title like that, you'd think this was one of my own adventures. What comes next, Return of the Terrible Toad Men? Ship also lashes out internally and manages to strike down Jean. Okay, this bugs me because we've seen Jean get her telepathy back, and I feel like if she's going to be attacked, it should be on the plane that she is now a warrior in. But instead, no. A weird robot tentacle thing just reaches out and strangles her and knocks her unconscious. No, Jean is actually a super badass fighter on the physical plane, too, and she's an extremely powerful telekinetic. She's... You know, she's she's no slouch in, in a regular fight. She shouldn't be taken out this easily, period. Well, you know, I think part of the problem is maybe during that wonderful issue where she had tentacles instead of arms, she grew to not fear tentacles. She grew to trust them, to see them as a part of herself. And so when this one attacked her, you know, she had forgotten the tentacles are actually potentially scary. You're no prizes in the mail. Excellent. I feel great about that. While ship is mostly under hard drive's control at this point... 
It has just enough wherewithal still to warn the crew that someone is going after Nathan Christopher. And Cyclops races off to the rescue, but someone beats him there, and that is a mysterious red-haired cyborg lady. Praise the light. I arrived in time. Our rescans of this time are dangerously scattered. We knew you were at hazard, but not the precise nature until I psych-waved in. Okay, so this is a red-haired, time-traveling lady from the future who refers to, quote-unquote, our father while talking to Nathan Christopher and later calls him little brother. And she's got what looks like some kind of phoenix mark on her forehead. And let me get this straight. She's not Rachel Summers. I know, right? This would have been a perfect place to put in, like, some future or even past version of Rachel Summers. And, I mean, Rachel's going to end up tied in with this lady's group later anyway. It seems like kind of a loss. And the thing is, this lady, she's called Ascani. But she won't even end up being the Ascani. She's just an Ascani, a member of the Ascani clan. Her name is Jen. Jen Ascani. I mean, we know that's a popular Ascani name and that it, in the Ascani culture, it's basically a bastardization of Jean. I mean, okay, that actually is a good point. I really like the idea of her just having a super normal name despite being a future cyborg warrior. But now you've taken that from me by bringing in the continuity that our podcast is based on. It's Aww. okay. Maybe she's got a sister named Cynthia Ascani. Oh, maybe. Here's Steve Ascani over here. There we go. Well, after some classic confusion, Foxbat does, in fact, get away with baby Nathan Christopher. And Ascani um, proves that she has, in fact, spent her life as a disciple of the, the story and teachings of X-Factor by busting out through a wall. That's right. So, back with the team, Beast is trying to get a handle on what the hell is going on with Ship. It's definitely killing Ship. It's killing Ship very fast, and it's definitely from Apocalypse. And Ship, who would pretty much do anything to avoid reverting to Apocalypse's control, decides that the only solution is to fly off and self-destruct in space with X-Factor and Charlotte Jones still on board. And here Cyclops gives this impassioned speech about how suicide is not the answer. And I gotta say, after doing Kings of Pain last episode, that is a hell of a contrast. I disagree. And I disagree for reasons that I went into last episode which is that those circumstances were really exceptional, and what he was suggesting was... Anyway, I get the contrast, but I disagree with you about what he's actually doing in Kings of Pain. Okay, well, fair enough. Now, though, it's a race against time, as Beast uses his fancy fiber optic and possibly somewhat telepathic network to find a solution to their dilemma. And I love the way this is portrayed. So, the movie Hackers, one of the finest films in the history of mankind and the most accurate movie about information technology ever. Which we've now referenced two episodes in a row. As well we should. But that movie pondered very hard how to make hacking scenes seem exciting, because in reality, hacking is just typing stuff onto a screen. Like, it's not that visually interesting. That's so, not for the true. Movie, a lot of hacking is things like making phone calls and awkwardly pretending to be someone else who lost their password. Like, even, okay, the, yes. even the intense typing, super fast racing thing is not, like, HackerTyper.com lied to you. Well, anyway, the movie hackers decided to make things visually interesting by using visual computer graphics metaphors. You know, the famous skateboarding through the internet and stuff like that. Okay, no, that's not here, a metaphor. That's how the internet actually worked at that point in time. Well, you don't have to tell me twice. I mean, I work in information technology. But in this scene here, we see Beast's dialogue alternating with the others fighting. We have Beast yelling about computers, while X-Factor yell fights with a bunch of Dark Rider types. And the back-and-forth pacing here, I think, is something Portacio does extremely well. It is super engaging and super tense. I think this is something that would be really difficult to pull off with any character but Beast. 
you need someone whose dialogue is as dynamic and as engaging as a fight scene. You couldn't have a straight wall of it, but as a counterpoint and as a contrast, it works really, really well. Totally. But just as Beast yells that he's got it... Ship explodes. Damn. That is a hell of a way to end an issue. I love that, man. There is... Look, ending ending an issue or an episode or something with the illusion that the entire cast has just been blown up in space or gone over a cliff or something like that is an old and tried and true trope. But I still love it and it still works. Yup. And what another tried and true trope is, as we see at the beginning of the next issue, is when people blowing up in space or whatever is no big deal at all. Classic Claremont right here. X-Factor is okay, and Ship is sort of okay as well, at least it's consciousness. What we'll learn a little bit later is that Beast and Ship, while connected, managed between the two of them to quickly stow Ship's entire mind into a survival capsule around the X-Factor crew in Charlotte. It's totally unclear at the beginning of 67, though. Well, either way, they're picked up by, hey, the Inhuman Royal Family. You know, Black Bolt, Crystal, Karnak, Gorgon. Not Medusa, we'll find out why soon. Is it because she couldn't handle being seen in public in that terrible, terrible wig? It's possible. I haven't seen the Inhuman show yet, but, whew, reviews have not been kind. Yeah, I... I don't know. I, I feel like I, I kind of don't want to see it sober. Fair enough. Well, the Inhumans explain, Apocalypse and his Riders of the Storm seized their city on the moon and kidnapped Medusa. Furthermore, the Riders of the Storm not only are a Doors reference, but they're all traitor Inhumans who left the Inhuman Moon Kingdom to go work for Apocalypse. Those assholes. So I want to talk about the Inhuman Royals for a minute, because I'm really angry about them. Okay, there are many reasons. Which is yours? So many reasons. So, so many reasons. Um, the Inhumans are kind of terrible, and the whole eugenics thing is iffy. I mean, it's deeply iffy. It's terrible. The Inhumans are generally fairly terrible. But um, <laughs> specifically, I want to talk about Black Bolt and the fact that someone always has to translate for Black Bolt or assume what he's thinking or something. So Black Bolt's deal is that he has a super hardcore voice. That's also why he has a tuning fork on his head, um, I think. Maybe Kirby just I'm going to say sure. Cool. But um, the Inhumans are very, very Kirby designed. That's actually what something they have going for them. They're 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 very stylish and they're very Kirby. But Black Bolt's deal is that his voice is incalculably destructive. Even a whisper can bring down a city, and so he doesn't talk. And Medusa just speaks for him and assumes she knows what he's thinking because she knows him that well. This bugs me for a lot of reasons, but the first the first of which is, like, we know the Inhumans are literate. He could just write stuff down. Or you know what? Actually, if he wanted to participate in conversation, maybe they could come up with or find some kind of some kind of semiotics he could he could use, uh, some gestural semiotics. Yes, a, a, a language of signs, one might say, or a sign language. I mean, I know this is a comic book, but let's not let's not get too far out there. Such a thing is clearly implausible. Seriously, why the fuck is there not ISL? I do not know. Well, what I do know is that we're not just on the moon here, where Apocalypse Space is. We're on the blue area of the moon. That's where the climax of the Dark Phoenix saga took place. That's a part of the moon that has air so people can breathe and stuff, and a lot of buried technology, and where Dark Phoenix died. 
To be fair, it's also the only part of the moon that anyone ever visits. That's legit. I mean, the tourism boards of other parts, of all the other mares, could probably do a lot better. So one way to make an arc a big deal is to have other major characters video conferencing in, or to show up in big fight scenes where the fights are taking place. We've talked about both of those over the last couple episodes, but this is another. You reference, in this case repeatedly, a huge previous significant story. Now... This is a risky, risky move because you've got to be really confident that what you're writing, that what you're doing is not going to look bad in comparison. See figure one, the Raul Julia movie Overdrawn at the Memory Bank, which references Casablanca all the time. Overdrawn at the Memory Bank doesn't look so great by comparison, as much as I love Raul Julia. Well, and see also, I think, to a lesser extent, the opening of Mark Guggenheim's run on X-Men Gold, the current series, which isn't bad, but is so heavily and deliberately referential to the opening of Whedon's run on Astonishing X-Men that you can't help comparing them, and Guggenheim doesn't hold up. Right. Now, in this case, I think partially by virtue of being the same writer, it kind of does work. Yeah, I think the advantage here is that it's not just trying to evoke the Dark Phoenix saga, it's responding to it somewhat directly. It's the same writer, it's a number of the same characters, and it's a drama and a sort of sacrifice that makes for a very natural counterpoint to the Dark Phoenix saga. Totally. Well, the Riders of the Storm attack again, this time kidnapping Crystal. So, okay, Crystal's been kidnapped, Medusa's been kidnapped, Jean got knocked out by a tentacle like a chump. I gotta say, women really get short shrift in this arc. Correct. And then back at Apocalypse's new base... The circuitry-covered baddies examine a strangely pompadoured and strangely older-looking Nathan Christopher. You know, the weird Renaissance baby thing we were talking about. He doesn't look that much older than he does the other times Portacio draws him in this arc. He, it's just that Portacio draws him looking like a weird little teenager. True. And Apocalypse helpfully explains to himself, to the baby, to the riders, and to us, if this kid lives, Apocalypse is doomed— And if the kid dies, Apocalypse is going to thrive, so therefore Apocalypse is going to absorb his life force? Wait a goddamn minute, Apocalypse! If this kid is your doom, just kill him, then you'll be fine, there's no risk. I mean, I know you're a supervillain and you have to make supervillain mistakes, but come on, dude, this is a lot even for you. Well, that's Apocalypse's weakness. He'll never take the obvious solution if there's a more dramatic option. Him and Sinister both, really. I mean, I guess that makes sense. They used to be allies, now they're rivals. But wow, that said, if Apocalypse was a more direct, more efficient villain, he wouldn't be Apocalypse. He wouldn't be as much fun as he is. I love Apocalypse. He's one of my favorite villains in all of comics. And part of that is he gets caught up in his own grandiosity, which I gotta say, if you're gonna fuck up, fucking up because you're trying to make it awesome is probably a pretty good reason. Here's the issue with that. If you're going to get caught up in and trip over your own grandiosity, you are automatically a pale shadow of Doctor Doom. Valid point. But really, aren't we all? Well, it's time for another attack, because X-Factor and the Inhuman Royal Family, and the Inhuman Royal Family's army, attack Apocalypse's base, and it's pretty fucking dramatic looking. Like, well done, Wills Portacio. Well, it's really super extra dramatic looking because it's not actually the Inhuman Army. Those are mostly trapped by Apocalypse. It's just a bunch of holograms. Right. Well, what they face is at least impressive. They face not one, two, three, or four, but five Apocalypses. Apocalypse-i. Apocali. That's that's a lot of Apocalypses. I think there was a Buffy the Vampire quote about what the plural for Apocalypse was. Uh, but... 
as the army attacks and face the apocalypses, they also face a bunch of the Inhumans who are working for Apocalypse, and some of them look freaking awesome. One of the great things about the Inhumans, which is the same thing as one of the great things about mutants, is that they can look all kinds of different ways. And this one dude in particular... He's got big cat eyes on the outside of his normal eyes. He's got this triple widow's peak that turns into wolverine hair that looks like it's made of seaweed. He's got purple skin. And one of the apocalypses is riding on his shoulders. This is phenomenal. I want to hang out with this guy. Well, maybe that's a bad idea, but I kind of do anyway. Children of the world, cosplay this immediately. Seriously. So the Inhumans and the NX Factor fight back. Karnak uses his power to find flaws in things to direct Gorgon to stomp at just the right place, and the baddies all fall into a hole. And the good guys dissolve because they were mostly holograms, like you mentioned. So that was nice and clean. The non-holographic good guys, meanwhile, have snuck around the back, where Black Bolt uses his voice as a battering ram to bust through the wall of the fortress and rescue the other Inhumans. What do you think that Black Bolt whispers when he does that? Like, he's got to say something to make a noise. Does he just make a noise, or is it words? Fuck dead. And that's canon. Well, anyway, the Royals and Charlotte Jones look after the now-rescued, now-escaped Inhumans, and X-Factor charges toward Apocalypse to get back Nathan Christopher in a gloriously 90s splash panel with the background consisting entirely of anime-style speed lines. Like, yes, this art is consistently, continually over the top, but, like, I think I'm pretty okay with that. As X-Factor fight their way through the underground section of the fortress, they realize in turn that they are, in fact, in the underground tunnels where Phoenix died. Again, we are going to that nostalgia place hard. We are referencing those significant moments hard. Well, we kind of are, because it's a four-panel page, so Jean gets a moment, and Hank gets a moment, and Bobby gets a moment, and Archangel gets a moment. Um, but Cyclops does not, and that seems really strange to me, because he was there and Iceman wasn't. That's a fairly good point, and I do like that Iceman at least acknowledges that he was the only one of the O5 that was not there for the Dark Phoenix saga, which always seemed weird, but still... Well, the Apocalypse Eye are kind of weak, and Ship's Consciousness is able to find Nathan Christopher easily. Cyclops is thinking, this is way too easy, this has got to be a trap, as X-Factor opens the door, slash makes their own door, to the chamber where Nathan Christopher in a great big machine is being held by Apocalypse. He is right the fuck there, presumably the real one. And Apocalypse has apparently been spending all of this time working on his villain lines so that as soon as Cyclops busts in, he can say, Give X-Factor's leader a cigar! That seems like a bad idea under the circumstances, especially with a baby right there. Come on! Come on, Apocalypse! Seriously, you'd be a terrible parent and Sabah-ner. I mean, like, a really terrible parent. And this- Well, we know he was. He raised strife. Exactly. And this Apocalypse, he is mother- fucking huge. We're used to seeing Apocalypse grow, but, like, even for Apocalypse, he fills the room. He's looming and wired into this machine that the baby's in, you know, with the whole energy-absorbing, killing-the-baby kind of thing. This is some scary shit, but perhaps we should now go into a flashback. Flash forward. Well, kind of both. It's the far, far future, and we see what the deal with this Ascani lady was before she came to the present day. She decided or it was collectively decided that someone had to go back in time to save this timeline, to specifically save Nathan Christopher Summers, who would be the person who, if he survived, could take down Apocalypse. And she was the only one with the power to do it. But it's almost like tradition, 
rip-roaring from the present to save the future by changing the past. Which again totally implies that it's Rachel, as does the fact that she mentions that her ability to time-fly runs in the family. Like, clearly, clearly. Should have been Rachel. But we then see Ascani awakening in the present day, in our timeline, or at least 1991's timeline. Well, and we find out how time travel works for her. Right, because now she's just energy in the form of the woman that she was. She couldn't project her physical form back. Well, what, what was supposed to happen? She discorporated, she traveled through the time stream as energy, and she was supposed to basically reassemble when she, when she arrived, but she wasn't able to. So she just coalesced the energy. She's able to make it solid sometimes, but she's gradually discorporating. She's running on a limited timeline, too. And that brings us to X-Factor number 68, Finale. The last issue about the original five. I mean, okay, there's still going to be a couple issues that are part of the Muir Island saga, but as far as X-Factor being its own book, as of this issue, this is it. So this issue is a bit different from the preceding three, and the first and most obvious place that's the case is that this issue has something that's very, very rare in X-Titles, especially at this point in time, which is Cyclops narration. And I think that is pretty necessary because it's a big action issue, but it's also substantially about Cyclops and feelings, and you can't really have both of those without giving Cyclops his own internal narration. Right. If you're doing a Cyclops feelings story, A, he's really bad at talking about that stuff, and B... Because of the way his visor works, you can't use the usual visual semiotics for someone's having feelings while doing other stuff, which basically means you need to have quiet enough moments that you can do a lot with body language, which this story can't have because it's an ongoing fight. And thus, you know, then the captions. Now, one interesting thing here is that Cyclops' narration outright states that, in his opinion, Apocalypse is the Magneto to X-Factor's X-Men. And I'm okay with this. I mean... X-Factor's goal has always been and increasingly been to protect the weak from the strong, specifically weak mutants from strong whatever, and this arc really crystallizes it. I will give him that analogy only if what he's specifically comparing is saying that Apocalypse is to X-Factor as Magneto was to the Silver Age X-Men. If you move past that, the comparison doesn't hold up. That's true. I mean, Apocalypse has allied with the X-Men a couple of times over the years, but he's never been the multi-layered, sympathetic, gray, good guy, bad guy that Magneto is. Apocalypse is a straight-up villain all the fucking time. Right. Magneto is frequently an opponent, but he's rarely a villain, and Apocalypse just is. Totally. And Apocalypse defeats X-Factor and crams him in a bunch of big tubes in his machine. He's going to absorb their life force, too. And this is where we find out that that whole weak and strong deal he's been talking about since he was introduced, in reality, he's just trying to get the strong isolated out from the weak so that he can absorb their powers and become strong enough to challenge the Celestials, the race of space gods that gave him his abilities way, 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 way back in the past. I mean, it sort of goes with his general ideals, but I don't know. Apocalypse's motivation changes pretty regularly, so eh, whatever. I kind of like the way he was before. I kind of like the idea that he's so obsessed with his ideology of winnowing the weak from the strong, of the strong being the only ones to survive, that he just messes up the entire world for thousands of years to do so. Having it be about his own individual benefit, his own individual power, that makes him seem more petty than godlike, which I think is a detriment to the character. He's always been, though, and that's always been one of his greatest weaknesses, that he gets caught up in his own drama. He gets caught up in his own image. He gets caught up in his own symbolism. Inevitably, his hubris is, is what's used to take him down, as it is in this case, because what we learn, again, via Cyclops' narration, is that getting captured was X-Factor's plan all along. They figured it was probably a trap. They went into it deliberately, 
And now they're exactly where they want to be. They break out and half the team and a couple in humans face off against Apocalypse while Gene and Hank rush to free Nathan Christopher. With Ascanius' help, but they discover that something has gone terribly wrong, TM. Nathan Christopher Summers is experiencing, in Ship's words, A progressive degradation of the cohesive structure of his fundamental DNA matrix. So that's bad news, and Ship's trying to patch up Nathan Christopher Summers, you know, despite now just being a mostly disembodied consciousness, but it's not working. Well, and he's patching Nathan Christopher up with with ship stuff, with, with circuitry. And it's, it's, yeah, it's not working, but it's looking pretty badass and cool. And I have a question. Did we know that, did, did the writers know, did the folks working on the books know that Nathan Christopher was going to become Cable at this point? Now, I'm not fully clear on it, but my understanding is that, yes, this story was what officially establishes the retcon of Cable being an older version of Cyclops and Madeline Pryor's son. And there are just so many little clues, all the stuff with the family that Ascani talks about, the way that Nathan Christopher gets so screwed up, the fact that Cable had been named Nathan very recently. What I was going to specifically allude to here was the shape and the directions that the decay and the um, the techno-organic stuff takes that they're starting to mirror Cable's own scars. Yeah, I mean, there's that too. There's just so much here that makes it work. And in fact, it's going to work even better as time goes on when we find out that part of why Apocalypse did this was not just to eliminate Nathan Christopher as a threat, but also to create a time loop that would mean he himself got empowered. It gets super, super confusing, but there's no need to go into that right now. Right, because speaking of time loops, we learn that this apparently is why Ascani was sent. She didn't know the specific nature of the threat to Nathan Christopher, because Apocalypse messes with their ability to see clearly into the past, but she knew something life-threatening was going to happen to him, and this has to be it, because she realizes she can save him. She can take him into the future, where the technology exists to keep him alive, if not necessarily to cure him. But the infection is still running its course. It's still attacking Nathan Christopher hard. And Nathan Christopher, we've seen that he has a mind link with Gene. We've seen that he has some kind of a telepathic skill, but never like this because he pulls Gene into his mind, into this weird pastel fairyland. Populated by really fucking creepy woodland creatures. Where Gene is like this crystalline warrior who ends up facing off against Apocalypse. Nathan Christopher Summers is personified version of whatever's killing him. Apocalypse isn't actually in Nathan Christopher's mind, but that's how Nathan Christopher interprets it. And so we see the baby trapped in this big robot Apocalypse body dueling Jean Grey with her armor and blades, and goddamn, this is badass. And what I like about it is that these aren't just generic astral warriors like we see, say, when Professor Xavier psychically duels with the Shadow King. These are versions of Apocalypse and Jean based on how Nathan Christopher sees them. The background of the astral plane is how Nathan Christopher sees the world. It's like a sort of crystal fairy tale, and that's such a cool way of visually describing it. It kind of reminds me of what a lot of things remind me of, which is the video game Psychonauts, where you go into people's minds, and their minds are all vastly different based on the things that are important to them and how they see the world. I'm imagining an X-Men variation of Psychonauts, and it's just really upsetting. Oh god, yeah, that would be pretty messed up, yeah. but I would totally yeah. play the hell out of it. Well, obviously. Now, this whole sequence doesn't actually serve much story purpose. You'd expect Jean would defeat this entity, or this entity would be defeated, and it would make a difference, or it would defeat her, and the decay would progress. Neither of those things exactly happens. What this fight is mostly in here for, what this whole psychic sequence is in here for, is mostly so Cyclops can also come in and help out as kind of a satisfying capstone um, 
and again, Diptych to the Mastermind duel in the Dark Phoenix Saga. Right, because Cyclops uh, fought Mastermind on the Psychic Plane. I think he was dressed in like old-timey colonial kind of garb. It was it was really funny. Yeah, he was dressed as a somewhat anachronistic 18th century sea captain. But then Cyclops wakes up really disoriented, but... He still manages to stagger to his feet and blast Apocalypse to smithereens. And he does this with some narration that comes so close to being ultimately badass, but manages at the last minute to kind of muddy it up with antecedent confusion. I, I don't know. I got mixed feelings about this bit. Eh, it's the 90s. I'll give him a pass. What does he say? The eyes, it's said, are the windows to the soul. So I open mine wide and give Apocalypse a view of mine. And damn if this full-page spread isn't badass as hell. I mean, in the climax of Inferno, we saw Cyclops disintegrating the crap out of Sinister with his optic blasts. This is very reminiscent of that, another callback, and it works. I mean, we know that Apocalypse has been kind of weak, maybe because he's been hooked up to this machine draining energy from Nathan Christopher, maybe other reasons it's unclear— so it makes a little more sense than it might, but all sense goes out the window when you are looking at a page that looks this fucking rad. Well, this is also something that you get very rarely in X-Men comics, and when you do, it's always pretty dramatic punctuation. Cyclops doesn't let loose, metaphorically, or, you know, with his powers. He is incredibly in control, and so when he opens the visor all the way up and you get a splash page of just red, or red and Kirby dots or whatever, shit is going down. Seriously. And Apocalypse himself is down. But Nathan Christopher is still fading fast. This baby is still dying, says Cyclops. I should check the debris, I know, to make sure he's gone. But frankly, I couldn't care less. In our line of work, villains, and occasionally heroes, always seem to come back bigger and better than before. Only the innocent, it seems, truly die. I spent precious little time with my son for so much of his young life. The least I can do is give him my full attention at the end. Huh. <sighs> Claremont dialogue. Goddamn. Yeah, when it works, it works. But thankfully, there is another option. There is Ascani. She's got a plan. And if Cyclops lets her take Nathan Christopher, Nathan Christopher is going to be lost to him forever. Spoiler, not really. But Nathan Christopher will live. So in the end, it's not even really a choice for Cyclops. There's so much I want to say. And I remember the night in Alaska when I told Madeline I was a mutant. And our flight to Boragora. And how I felt when she told me about the baby. And later when I held him for the first time. The bad times are there too, but they aren't important. It's the joy that sparkles in my mind. And in his as well. He's sad as my little son, the bravest of us all. But he isn't afraid, because he knows this is right. So I let him go. This arc is such a mixed bag. So much of it is ridiculous or doesn't work. Like, why are the Inhumans even here? Who knows? What's going on half the time in the art? It's hard to say, but then there's this. Then there's this bringing back all of that continuity, all of that character growth, all of that history, and cutting right to the goddamn heart of what makes these characters who they are. I gotta say, reading this retrospectively, it's hard not to latch on to the fact that Claremont's last story on this um, is so very much about letting go. 
Seriously. I mean, it wasn't intended. Claremont was supposed to be staying on the books for a long time to come, but in retrospect, it works. It's sort of a thematic real-life retcon in a way. Yeah, we see it here. We see it somewhat, uh, you know, the, the themes have changed in, in Uncanny X-Men as well. With Apocalypse down and everything at least vaguely resolved, there is a big inhuman dance party, and Cyclops, who's bad at parties and also um, just lost his kid, so has, has his own stuff going on, wanders outside and finds Charlotte Jones, um, who's also sitting outside kind of trying to make sense of everything. And they have kind of a nice wrap-up. Some sight. And a half. Ain't nobody gonna believe this. Blazes, folks probably think I'm dead, blown up along with X-Factor in your ship. I'm sorry about your boy, Cyclops. I... I pray you did the right thing. I'll never know. So I guess there's nothing for it but to assume the best. It comes so easily for you. Life, death, dancing across space and time. You're wrong, Sergeant. It hurts. It always will. More than I can put words to. But the dream that bound us all together, X-Factor, and before us the X-Men, was based on hope. Hell. Fucking. Yeah. Oh, oh, I love this! Okay, I was going back and forth on whether I like this arc. I think I can now officially state, having done most of this episode, I fucking love this arc. Yeah, and there's a page of final denouement from The Watcher, which honestly, I could do without. It's okay, but I think the previous conversation and Cyclops' final bit of narration just put such a beautiful pin in it. And the laughter inside my skull is silent. The ghost, maybe all the ghosts, finally put to rest. And of course, there are always going to be more ghosts, always, but I like this. Yeah, good luck with that, buddy. In fact, there's literally going to be a group called Ghosts of Cyclops much later. That's true. Much, much later. <laughs> but I do like this. But... I kind of like the Watcher's speech. I mean, we don't need to quote it or anything, but the Watcher talks about how Cyclops has finally come to terms with his actions and made peace with his demons. And that table clearing thing we mentioned before, that getting back to that classic Claremont burn era of X-Men, this is part of it. This is, in a way, in an indirect way, admittedly, redemption for what Cyclops did with Madeline Pryor, with the way he handled the dissolution of their marriage. Jean Grey now has her telepathy again. Baby Nathan Christopher is out of the way, so the characters aren't parents anymore. Beast just talked about still seeing himself as an X-Man, and we have the seeds for a delicious retcon. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? I don't know, but it's an effective and thorough thing. I disagree with some of the points that you're making here. I think it's effective and thorough, but... When we started talking about X-Factor, I think more than a year ago, I mentioned that I see this as a book about growing up and a book about figuring out who you are outside of a very set range of roles. It's about these kids who grew up at Xavier's, who've been through some other stuff since getting back together, but in the real world and trying to figure out how to interact with it and how to be the people they've never really had the chance to be. And while in some ways this feels like a reset at the end, to me it feels much, much more like coming through the other side of that because none of these characters revert to who they were at the beginning of the series. They, you know, power-wise, yeah, sure, great, they do. But in terms of personality and in terms of, of character development, I think they've come a very long way and I don't think that's something that they lose. 
You know, I actually totally agree with you. I mean, the table clearing we see, the resets we see, those are all service level things. Those are all changing powers, changing roles, changing teams. And that I'm okay with. I mean, in a superhero comic, you're going to have things go back and forth. You're going to have things change and then go back to where they were. Usually, I'm pretty fine with that. But you're totally right that the important thing is these are not the same characters that they were at the beginning of the series. At the last time they were on the X-Men, before X-Factor, and before certainly that they went back to the team in just a few months after this. I mean, it's not just the physical changes, like, you know, Archangel and Beast are both blue in one case, for the first time in one case, yet again. It's that they're different people. They've gotten through some shit, they've gotten over some shit, they've developed some new problems that they're dealing with. That's why serialized storytelling works so well, and I'm so glad that they stay who they are. Yeah, their powers may have changed, but the things that define them as characters are very different by now. So... That's that's it for the team. Nathan Christopher, meanwhile, is off to Earth 4935. And I don't know if it's mentioned in the issue, but accompanying him is Ship. Yeah, the consciousness of Ship goes with Nathan Christopher into the future, I think expecting to die. But Ship is actually going to become Professor, the AI that hangs out with Cable, which is kind of awesome and I kind of love a lot. Yeah, Professor's pretty great. So we've got a couple backup features running through this. One of them we're not going to cover yet because it, it ties directly into some later stuff, but it does introduce Shinobi Shaw, the son of Sebastian Shaw, who is notable primarily for running real hard with dapper Edwardian lesbian as his aesthetic, and I am so here for that. You could do a lot worse than the dapper Edwardian lesbian aesthetic, I gotta say. Now, the other stuff we are going to touch on now, because it ties in, and that is the Apocalypse Manifesto, which is not a manifesto at all. In fact, it's more of a gallery, and it reminds me very much of Strife's Burn Book. Oh, yeah, Strife's Strike File, as it was incorrectly titled. It also reminds me of we the— all know, We all know it's the Burn Book. It also reminds me of the Sienkiewicz-drawn Xavier Files from Old New Mutants, which I believe was like the first time we even saw a Legion. It could well be, but yeah, no, and I, I want to say, by the way, Strife's Strike File— is I believe an Executioner's Song thing, which is another Blue Area of the Moon Summer's Family drama story with backup profiles of a bunch of characters written by a villain. So, so yeah, this is, ex expect Summer's Family bullshit on the moon to be a running motif. That's kind of one of the core sentences about X-Men that you just said, Jay. I love it. Um, but we won't go into too much detail with the Apocalypse Manifesto. Basically, he talks about his evaluations of each member of X-Factor. We'll just do a few highlights. So for Archangel, it has one of my favorite quotes in comic books of this era as he describes Archangel as The birth spawn of my soul, if not my loins. God damn it, Apocalypse. Don't talk about your loins. So, I'm guessing Apocalypse doesn't actually make the last word of every sentence he says sound super dramatic and drawn out, but I gotta say, if you're gonna say loins, you should probably say it like that going forward. I mean, if you can get, like, an Apocalypse voice filter in your day-to-day -day life to do so, I recommend that too. So, after becoming aware of the frequency with which loins is misread as lions, I have taken to deliberately reimagining instances of each as the other, just to, to consider the options, and I gotta say, lions here really, really amps up the awesome of the quote. The birth song of my soul, if not my lions! It's so easy to imagine Apocalypse with pet lions. It totally is. So, 
Apocalypse mainly with Archangel is just pleased at himself for having created this perfect tortured monster, which, yeah, I buy that totally in character. He has a little bit less to say about Cyclops. You know, he's okay, he's competent, he's one of the Twelve. The freaking Twelve. Man, I always love that little build-up of who are the Twelve, what's their deal, and you find out later and it's totally stupid. Eh, what can you do? Now, I think Apocalypse probably has the most insight into Marvel Girl, Jean Grey. He comments on how allowing herself to be called Girl, that's kind of indicative of how she tries to be what everybody else wants and doesn't really know who she's gonna be herself. So it might be significant that at this point she's either about to or has just reverted to just going by her name and not using a code name. I think it totally is. He also wonders if he should help Jean let her power free, and if in fact part of that power is the actual Phoenix Force in her, or just let her stay sublimated so she's not a threat. Apocalypse's perspective on what defines the strong and evolution and his own role in that is massively and continually hypocritical. As for Iceman... Uh, he gets it in one. Iceman just wants to be normal. Apocalypse also mentions that he wants to turn Iceman's dwindling fire into a raging inferno of desire, which, wow. Is he wearing, like, a white satin tuxedo and singing into a microphone when he utters those phrases? Now I want to see Apocalypse open for Dazzler. Or Dazzler open for Apocalypse. I was thinking more lounge singer Apocalypse. Now I just can't stop seeing Dazzler and Apocalypse doing a Mick Jagger, David Bowie, dancing in the streets kind of thing together. You know, you mentioned he kind of, he zooms right in on Iceman. Does the same thing with Beast. The longer the talk, the longer the words, the longer he was being paid attention to. He also makes a very prescient comment, which is that if it weren't for Xavier, Beast would be much more like Apocalypse himself. That's kind of the case. What Beast would actually be much more like is Sinister. And if you've read Age of Apocalypse, you know that Apocalypse is absolutely correct about that. So that's it for the backups, and now you've got questions. The Jack of Spades asks on Tumblr, All of the plans created by Mighty Apocalypse have seemingly failed, but really he has succeeded in his greatest endeavor. He will soon open a small craft store. Who among the mightiest mutants will he choose to be the four employees of Craftocalypse? Now, the answer to this is really, really obvious to me. And that's that we've got a set of villains who come automatically in a set of four whom we've established have regular craft nights. He's going to go straight for the Hellfire Club inner circle, whoever it happens to be at the time. Ideally the OGs, because it's not really craft night without Leland, but he'll take what he can get. Honestly, like, do you even go here, the Jack of Spades? Come on. <laughs> oh man, that would be wonderful. Now I'm just imagining Apocalypse helping the inner circle of the Hellfire Club, like, sort of tweak their costumes and improve them, like adding little bits of glitter and sequins, kind of like that one oh, scene from X-Men Yes, Apocalypse. like the makeover scene, scene from X-Men Apocalypse. Although I gotta say, if we're doing this, if you're gonna have an Apocalypse-themed crafting group, it's gonna have to be a crossover, because you can't really do that and not include Alison Hendricks from Orphan Black. I have never seen Orphan Black, but I do trust your judgment. Okay, so you know Tina. Uh-huh. Imagine her, but amoral. Our friend Tina, but amoral? That's terrifying. And way more traditionally domestic. That just makes it more terrifying. And then give her a lot of hot glue guns. Okay, yeah, that's and surprisingly an easy to picture. Alison well, Hendricks is fucking amazing, dude. You gotta, watch Orf you gotta watch Orphan Black. It's great. Well, anyway, what else do we have? An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr... 
Hi, I haven't been able to properly read the X-Books because of the price of the issues and time, but I'm making a to-read list. I got to read up to Uncanny X-Men number 210 in order through Unlimited, but I want to catch up to Blue and Gold. I'm hoping you guys could give me a reading list or guide. Okay, so this is actually a great question for us because we think about this stuff all the time, like as far as what's going to be in what episodes, what order we're going to do everything in. And we'd recommend starting with comicsbackissues.com's X-Men reading order page, which we'll link to in the visual companion to this episode as well. Yeah, that only goes up to the trial of Jean Grey in 2014, but that is a lot of X-Men in the meantime, so you should be just fine. Um, you could also try the Marvel Database, a common source for our research, which is at marvel.wikia.com. That's really good for cross-referencing which issues came out which month, uh, and with crossovers, it often tells you what comes next in terms of the series you're reading, but also what comes next plot-wise. You can even do that with individual characters. It's really useful. UncannyXMen.net also has a number of big events and crossovers broken down into reading order in ways that we found to be really, really helpful. And something I would definitely recommend that I use for research on what was going on with the comics uh, as far as, you know, behind-the-scenes stuff all the time is The Real Gentleman of Leisure. Uh, they have an X-Men review section that goes issue by issue for all of the X-Books in chronological order from the start. So lots of good options. Yeah, start with the X-Men reading order page, but there's much to supplement with depending on how much of a research uh, fiend you want to be, you know, with, I guess, us being the upper end of that. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and entities. Today, appropriately, I am turning things over to Ensabonar himself, Apocalypse. Since time immemorial, I have caused the weak and empowered the strong to those fit enough to survive. I have granted power, resources, and a place in what I prefer to think of as not a corporation, but a family! But now that you're done talking to HR, Kevin, Mapmaster Dorsey, and Jeremy, into what departments would you best fit? The free thinkers in the Alliance of Evil, Kevin? The team players of the Horsemen, Jeremy? Or perhaps the cutting-edge Gen Xers in our newest division, the Riders of the Storm? But it matters not, for the benefits package is amazing for any employee of Apocalypse! And let's turn it over to everybody's favorite angry Claremontian narrator. You tried to prepare for every contingency, James Pearson. While your classmates played, you studied strategy and trained countless hours. But at the end of the line, what use is it to be the perfect soldier when all the training in the world isn't enough to save the life of Mike Stevens? And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan arts, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, tune in for our first-ever East Coast show, live at New York Comic Con. With Chris Claremont and Louise Simonson. Mm-hmm.